Attention, true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt, have you ever felt, you know, just like weirdly tired? Always. <laughs> You're just always, that's your vibe? <laughs> yep, that's, that's my standard feeling throughout the day. <laughs> so, uh, I guess it's cool to have feelings. Uh, uh, not too long ago in a previous classic episode, you pointed out that the phrase UAP has been around for five years now, and it made me think a little bit about age. What if there was a way to mitigate the inevitable uh, grind of time? What if you could just take some blood from someone younger and, you know, get rid of that tired feeling? Okay, Illuminati, I'm out of here. (laughs) And we hope that you are in for today's classic episode, The Modern Vampire. It's a true story. Uh, There have been extensive experiments in the modern day with plasma transfusion in a way that is ethically fraught and riddled with conspiracy. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now. Or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Ben. Our compatriot Noel is traveling at the moment, but we'll be back soon. We are joined with our super producer, Paul Deccan. Most importantly, you are you, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Matt, I propose we begin this episode with a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. All right. So for the past 
gosh, two months almost, uh, Matt and Noel and I have been kicking the can down the road regarding a, a very interesting email we received mm-hmm. about the Georgia Guidestones. And every episode we have told each other we're going to read this in a shout-out corner at the end of the show, and we've just been, you know, so much like a dog chasing a ball that by the time we get to the end of an episode, we've we've found that we don't have room to squeeze this in. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to, instead of squeezing it in, mm-hmm. we're just going to place it in front of you, right here in front of this podcast. So let's consider this an oddly placed... Shout out corner. The message says, Greetings, Ben, Matt, Noel. This email is in regards to the Stuff They Don't Want You to Know podcast episode titled, Who Built the Georgia Guidestones, published 18th of November, 2016. We got there. We got to it eventually. We did. Uh, it says, Firstly, there were several pieces of information left out from your discussions on the topic. And this is a much longer email than we are going to read now. We are reading uh, one piece of it mm-hmm. that was most compelling to us. Mm-hmm. It says, the identity of R.C. Christian has since been revealed to be that of one Herbert Hinney, H-I-N-I-E, Kirsten, a doctor from Fort Dodge, Iowa. This was first reported in the documentary film Dark Clouds Over Elberton by Chris Pinto. It is also reported that Kirsten was a supporter of David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, and proponent of eugenics. He was apparently aided by a friend of his, Robert Merriman, who helped publish the Common Sense Renewed book, the one that we mentioned in that Mm -hmm. episode a whole bunch, and we actually have a copy of. Mm -hmm. And it was written, this is written to us by, quote, a guide to the end, unquote. And we thought this was, we thought this was fantastic. It, well, at least it's a, a fantastic lead on the mm-hmm. true identity of R.C. Christian. At this point, it has not been conclusively proven. Not everybody agrees that this is indeed Herbert Hinney Kirsten or Herbert Heine Kirsten, but mm-hmm. I think it's Hinney. I think yeah. it's Hinney, Matt. Uh, this has not been conclusively proven in a way that everybody accepts, but this is one of the most recent arguments for the true identity of R.C. Christian. Uh, if you'd like to learn more, please check out the documentary Dark Clouds Over Elberton, as well as uh, the fantastic documentary that Matt put together. No, that we put together. Okay, but it's available on Amazon for free. Uh, just search for us. Etched in Secret. Yeah, Etched in Secret is our, the name of uh, our take on it. Uh, and maybe one day we'll just get it on YouTube as well. Agreed. We should do that. And this concludes our oddly placed on to the show. Mm-hmm. Let's get let's get creepy. Let's get creepy immediately. Okay. <laughs> oh, that is a creepy voice, Matt. We've all heard myths about vampires, right? Yes. Some form of a vampire legend exists on every continent with the possible exception of Antarctica. There's the typical Dracula-type vampire. Uh, that's possibly the most familiar type of vampire here in the West. But there are other creatures as well, like the Aswang in the Philippines or the Lamia in Grecian uh, folklore. Yeah, bloodsuckers, beings that exist on the sanguine delights of other beings. <laughs> that's a great that's a great description, Matt. Yeah, and it's really tough to trace the beginnings of this myth of what a vampire is, what it was before it became a 
capital V vampire <laughs> that's in movies and pop culture. Uh, in From Demons to Dracula, the creation of the modern vampire myth, the author Matthew Beresford notes, quote, there are clear foundations for the vampire in the ancient world, and it is impossible to prove when the myth first arose. There are suggestions that the vampire was born out of sorcery in ancient Egypt, a demon summoned into this world from some other. Right, other being some other plane, yeah. uh, some other dimension. In earlier episodes, we explored the possible origins of the vampire myth, the, the po- by which we mean the possible real world seeds of truth mm-hmm. that, that later grew into, uh, this agglomeration of folklore. And th- this includes proposed uh, causes such as premature burial, which was horrifically common for a very, very long time. Uh, also, conditions, medical conditions like porphyria or dementia and mm-hmm. so on. And you can, again, find those episodes, both video and audio, at our website, stufftheyonwantyouknow.com. Or on whatever feed you're using to listen to this. Oh, yes, or on whatever feed you prefer. We should be out there and Mm -hmm. tell us if you can't find us on on your preferred feed. Uh, But today we are asking a more topical question. Uh, We're not asking whether something like a vampire ever existed or even if something like a vampire currently exists. Instead, we're asking whether it is possible to create vampires or something like them, not characters in fiction, friends and neighbors, nor monsters on the silver screen. We're talking about real-life vampires. Again, someone, something that exists on the blood of others. <laughs> and this concept of vampirism has become so prevalent in our worlds nowadays. It's been used as an insult. You vampire. Get out in the light, you vampire. Or um, a piece of opprobrium to heap upon all kinds of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, all too human right. monsters. Right, yeah. <laughs> You'll hear uh, opprobrium is uh, a word for reproach or, or insult. Uh, you'll hear this used to refer to certain serial killers in the past, you know, the vampire of so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And you'll also, of course, hear it uh, used to describe a lot of ancient aristocrats of course, the legendary Vlad Tepish is often cited as the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula, and he was a prince of a place called Wallachia uh, three different times between 1448 and his death. He was the second son of someone named Vlad Dracul, or Vlad the Dragon, who was the ruler of Wallachia in 1436. And although his father was known as Dracul or the Dragon, he... Vlad Tepish, Vlad III, was the more notorious of the two. He was known as the impaler for his habit of impaling his enemies, rivals, or just people who caught him on the wrong side of bed in the morning. He'd have these large wooden stakes erected, and then, graphic warning here, he would have their bodies forced on the stakes, the stakes going through their anuses and impaling them that way. Uh, he was also infamous for casually dining as he watched these people die a very slow, grisly, painful death. So in a way, he did get by through the blood of others in a very dark way. Sure, yeah, and in a experiential rather than a physiological way, perhaps. Mm -hmm. 
which yeah. is I don't know. That's a dangerous comparison because if we if we engage in that comparison, we get to a slippery slope where we could argue that all warlords or even politicians who are in charge of militaries subsist to a degree on the blood of others. I don't think that slope is that slippery. I think we might already have slipped. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's another example, which is Elizabeth Bathory or Erzbet Bathory, the noblewoman who was based in what is now known as Slovakia. In the 1600s, she was arrested and accused of numerous macabre crimes. Uh, we have just a few examples of those alleged crimes. Yeah, she would keep her – well, allegedly, she would keep her servants chained up every night so their their hands were just – so tightly bound that they would turn blue and sometimes even squirt blood out of them. Uh, she uh, used to beat her servants to the point that there was so much blood all over the place on the walls and the beds. They had to use ashes and cinders to soak it all up and scrub it all away. Uh, she even burned her servants with metal sticks, allegedly red hot keys and coins. She ironed the soles of their feet and even stuck burning rods into, um, their vaginas. Yes. Uh, and she didn't stop there with stabbing. She also pricked them in their mouths and fingernails with needles, cut their hands, lips and noses. Uh, she used knives, needles, candles, uh, occasionally her own teeth to lacerate the genitals of servants, stitched their lips and tongues together, made them sit on stinging nettles, bathe with the nettles, uh, forced them to cook and eat their own flesh or make sausages from it and serve it to the guest. She was accused of practicing dark magic, baking magical poisonous cakes in order to kill rival politicians such as George Thurzo, who was later one of the guys who arrested her. Uh, she was also, she would cast magic spells to summon clouds filled with angry cats. Huh. Most famously, most infamously rather, she was believed to have bled young servant girls dry and after exsanguinating their bodies or draining all the blood from them, bathing in that blood. Yes, and that's probably where you've most likely heard a lot of these stories mm -hmm. where – the, she is the um, – she's a whole other archetype in a way mm -hmm. of things beyond a vampire just having to do with bathing in the blood. Right. And this was characterized as part of a rite or a ritual that would lengthen her lifespan mm -hmm. and rejuvenate her. History has to a degree exonerated Bathory of some of these Accusations. At the time of the trial, over 300 individuals testified against her for one thing or another, and her servants were put to – four of her servants were put to gruesome ends, but given the influence that she had in society at the time, she was not killed. Uh, she was immured, I-M-M-U-R-E-D, which means they grounded her for the rest of her life. Yeah. Essentially, they put her in a windowless room. She was supplied with food and water and she was left there to die. But it looks like it looks like there are some problems with the claims. Most immediately, the whole idea of bathing in virgin blood. First, that idea came about centuries after her death. Mm. Someone added that to the 
to the story, to the campfire tale. Nah, that's an issue. It doesn't mean that she didn't do horrible things. Mm-hmm. It just means that came along much later. Also, from a scientific perspective, it's most likely impossible for her to, quote, bathe in virgin blood due to coagulation. Hmm. How would you, how would you keep the blood liquid long enough for there to be an entire tub of it? Interesting. I guess it would be in the, uh, how you got the blood out. Right, right. And ambient temperature and so on. Yeah. So. Oh, God. Yeah. We're getting grisly pretty okay. quickly in this one. So it's also possible that Bathory was targeted by the male-dominated establishment at the time because vilification or demonization of women was a common way of removing them from the political chessboard. This happened in witch hunts. You know, uh, a lot of times one thing that escapes historical explanations of the witch hunting phenomenon is the following – in certain practices in the Inquisition, in certain non-Inquisition witch hunts, the accuser, the person who put the witch to trial, who was almost always convicted mm-hmm. in one way or the other, uh, they would receive the wealth of the estate. So they were not objective in their accusations. They were incentivized or incented, whichever word you prefer, uh, to arrive at a guilty verdict. So it's quite possible that this was a political hit. Jeez. But we say all this because whether or not the legend is whether or not the legend is true, it is something iconic. It is an image that has stayed with us. You, me, probably everyone you know has heard of this these grisly stories about the elites of the world subsisting on the blood of the innocent and typically the uh, oppressed. Yeah, I mean, metaphorically, there's no bones about it. It kind of is true, metaphorically. Right, right. And so the question literally, then our conclusion becomes, that's it, right? Vampirism is largely a myth. An allegory of sorts. Right? Attention, true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. There may be more to this whole blood and vampirism thing uh, than we we had initially believed, or at least some aspect of it. Yeah, for decades, it turns out, scientists have been experimenting with the idea of transfusing blood from younger organisms to older organisms. Yeah, what happens when we put this young blood in here? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a uh, pardon the evil laugh. I didn't mean it to sound sinister, but it's it's true. And you have to wonder sometimes how much of this research starts from an informed place, and how much of it starts with someone going, you know what? I wonder. I I, I wonder. Like, hear me I, out. Hear me out. Hear me out, guys. I have this picture of I have this picture of you and. Paul and Matt Noel and I, listeners, I have this picture of us all sitting around the table and saying, what will our next experiment be? And then someone, like you mm-hmm. just did, Matt, goes, uh, guys, hear me out. We have a lot of mice. Yeah. And that's where they started. Uh, they Scientists began transfusing blood from young mice into the bodies of old mice and as it turned out, this was not just some weird thing for mad scientists to do for for kicks. It all goes back to something called parabiosis. Yeah, this is a 150-year-old surgical technique that unites the uh, vasculature, the veins and the arteries, the blood systems, essentially, of two living animals. And the word actually comes from the Greek para, meaning alongside, and bios, life. So you have two organisms that you've essentially created conjoined twins out of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're, we're animals that share a, a placenta in a womb. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, yeah, parabiosis does occur in nature, as with the with the example that Matt cited. Conjoined twins would probably be the most well known example. But we, we being the human species, learned that we could do this artificially, and. Here's the huge plot twist. 
not always automatically killing the living things we stitched together yeah. human centipede style. <laughs> well, well, not quite human right, centipede right. style. Sorry. <laughs> the, you're right. You're right, Matt. Uh, they're not – that's the digestive system more than right. anything. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. No, this would just be circulatory system and a lot less gross, but still gross. Yeah. In the lab, you see, parabiosis gives experts a, a, a tremendously rare opportunity to test what factors in the blood, in the circulatory system of one animal, do when they enter another animal. It's a question I've always asked myself. I know, sometimes out loud during meetings. <laughs> yeah, what happens if my blood was your blood and your blood was my blood? You know people can hear you when you do that, right? Oh, really? Yes. Uh-oh. Yes. That's why Noel's not here for this episode. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I think maybe you should just get a creative outlet, like, right poetry or essays. Or yeah, I'm going to pick up a guitar, I think. Yeah, get into some like real dark metal. Yeah. And you could create dark power ballads about these experiments because experiments with these rodent pairs, whether rats or mice or what have you, have led to immensely important breakthroughs in endocrinology, tumor biology, immunology, and so on. But here's a curious thing, Matt. Most of those discoveries occurred more than 35 years ago. Mm. The technique, for some unknown reason, fell out of favor in the 1970s. And That's so weird. Well, we did a lot of digging and we still can't we still can't find out what happened in the 70s. Yeah, I think most most of it is just the uh, ew factor. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. In the past few years, however, uh, a couple of labs, a relatively small number, have revived the practice of artificial parabiosis, especially in the field of age research or aging, because it turns out that by joining the circulatory system of an old mouse – to that of a young mouse, scientists can produce some remarkable things, which already just mm. sounds so problematic and spooky to me. But wait, what do they yeah. find? Well, in the heart, brain, muscles, and almost every other tissue examined, the blood of young mice seems to bring new life into aging organs, making old mice stronger, smarter, and healthier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> even without the voice, that's troubling. Yeah. It, 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 it does uh, it does good things to the old mice. Right, and it even makes their fur shinier. Oh, man, I'm sold now. <laughs> now these labs have begun to identify the components in this quote-unquote young blood that are responsible for these changes. Nice. For example, a biochemist and gerontologist named Clive McKay, based in Cornell University, uh, up there in Ithaca, New York, was the first individual to apply parabiosis to the study of aging. In 1956, he and his team joined 69 pairs of rats together in parabiosis. They stitched them up together so that their circulatory systems were in contact, mm -hmm. forming a larger circuit. And the linked rats included, you know, they all had those differing age ranges. So oh, one pair uh, was made up of a 16-month-old rat and a 1.5-month-old rat. In human terms, that's the same thing as sewing a 47-year-old person to a 5-year-old child. And here's the deal. When you 
when you attach a 47-year-old um, through the circulatory system to a five-year-old, sometimes it always doesn't go well um, from a psychology standpoint of the rats. Mm-hmm. So uh, here, here's a quote from uh, the authors who worked on this study. If two rats are not adjusted to each other, one will chew the head of the other until it is destroyed. Yeah, that's a quotation from the author's description of their work. Of the, This wasn't a pretty experiment. No. Because rats are highly intelligent animals, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously smart enough to know that something is not normal if they are stitched up to another individual, especially if they are not acclimated to that individual. Yeah. If you woke up and you were sewn to a stranger, you would have some questions, some concerns. You probably would not be chill about it. Yeah. So they also found that there was a troubling phenomenon they couldn't explain at the time back in the 50s. Of the 69 rodents that they paired together, 11 pairs died from a mysterious condition they called parabiotic disease. That occurred. This occurred about one to two weeks after the partners were joined, and it, it was probably a form of tissue rejection. Just yeah, the, your one body going, what the heck is this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, because in this in this case, you are transferring all of the blood. You're not taking out a component of the blood, as we're going to see maybe in the future here as we're moving on. You're getting everything. Excellent point. This is not a transfusion. This is the – this is compiling or mixtaping two separate circulatory systems. Yeah. So uh, in in McKay's first parabiotic aging experiment, after the old and young rats were joined for from anywhere from nine months to 18 months – they found in, you know, the, the one positive thing that seemed to come out of this, um, the older animals' bones became similar in weight and density to the bones of the younger counterparts that they were attached to. So it did seem like there is something going on here in at least most, in this case, of the cases of the pairs, some kind of beneficial thing for the older rats. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily for the younger rats. There's not really much of a benefit at all. No, it doesn't it doesn't seem like there is because it it's not as if the young rats somehow gain the wisdom and experience, <laughs> right? What seems to happen in the ideal case is that they enter into a type of symbiosis called commensalism. There are three types of symbiosis. Uh, symbiosis just means a close relationship between two or more species, right? The three types are mutualism, where both both parties benefit or all parties benefit, parasitism, where one benefits at the expense of the other, and commensalism, where one species benefits somehow and the other species is neither harmed nor helped. Arguably, this is on the line between commensalism and parasitism because while the younger animal is not necessarily being directly harmed, its life is going to be hindered. Yeah. Because it's, you know. Attached to this 47-year-old mouse. It's like <laughs> 16 months. Well, the 47 year old mouse, like your music is just really, I don't understand it. I, I don't know why we're watching this on TV. Let's watch oldies. So let's fast forward. Yeah. 
Let's get through the 70s, where again, this research mysteriously fell out of favor. A few years back, a team of researchers, Amy Wagers, Irina and Michael Conboy, and Thomas Rando, partnered up. They Voltroned up to take their separate areas of research in this field and combine them to investigate the phenomenon. Specifically, this group wanted to address a problem with the study of aging, with gerontology as a whole. Mm -hmm. And here's where we are now. It seems as if aging itself is a body-wide effect, Mm -hmm. right? your, Your body tends to break down sort of at the same time. There are environmental things that can that can affect you. For instance, um, you will take more damage depending on how you treat yourself. If you do, if you are an athlete and you have a lot of repetitive exercises, mm-hmm. right, then you may have concussions or you may have joint problems that might not have appeared in the same way. Yeah, even if you're just walking around all the time, your joints and your knees aren't going to be the same as perhaps the joints. In your shoulder, if you aren't very active with your shoulder. Sure. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. Good point. And the problem is that they wanted to, they wanted to see if they could determine what coordinates the aging process. Uh, in the words of Rando, why does everything in your body go to hell in a handbasket at once? Why does this affect multiple parts of the body simultaneously? So they tried these experiments again and they took some lessons learned Mm -hmm. from the earlier experiments in the 50s so they made sure the mice or the rodents knew each other before they sewed them together oh wow and thomas rando says that he did not expect the experiment to work but it did within five weeks he said the young blood restored muscle and liver cells in the older mice notably by causing aged stem cells to start dividing again They also found that young blood resulted in enhanced growth of brain cells in old mice, although that work was left out of their 2005 paper that described the results. Mm. All in all, the results suggested that blood was the medium of transportation for whatever the mystery factor or factor was that coordinated aging in different tissues, which makes sense. Because blood is a very well-traveled substance in the human body. In 2008, the Conboys, uh, Irina and Michael, linked muscle rejuvenation to the activation of something called notch signaling, which promotes cell division. Or to be more technically accurate, it's the muscle rejuvenation is dependent upon the deactivation of the transforming growth factor pathway. That's what blocks cell division. In 2014, the group identified one of the age-defying factors circulating in the blood. Oh, yeah, that's oxytocin. It's a hormone that's best known for its involvement in childbirth and bonding. We've discussed that several times in our... um, our How your brain betrays you when you're in love. Yeah, exactly. I did not mean to sound that bitter. (laughs) Yes, Um And already a drug approved by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States, uh, it's, it's, it's approved for inducing labor in pregnant women. Um, you, oh, I forget what it's called, uh, uh, Pitocin, Pitocin, I think is what it's called. Uh, yes, my, my wife didn't have to use it. Huh. 
That's fascinating. That's a good thing, right? You want the minimum amount of. Yeah, and chemicals going in during pregnancy. But it's used a lot of times to induce, um, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus here, but a lot of times used to induce a labor when staff is being changed out uh, in a period so that a new nurse or a new set of people coming in don't have to just pick up where the other whole crew left off. Okay, because they might not have the background knowledge of the previous. Yeah, I'm not saying that's events. that's not officially what it's used for. But if you're in a tight spot and you need to get a baby out, it's also really helpful. And oxytocin, it turns out, the levels of this substance decline with age in both men and women. And when oxytocin is injected into older mice over a systematic regimen or schedule, the hormone quickly, within a couple of weeks, regenerates muscles by activating muscle stem cells. Wow. And Wagers was following up on this anti-aging work at Harvard where she started her own lab in 2004. She recruited the help of experts in various organ systems to help her evaluate the specific impact of young blood on the respective tissues of these organs. Uh, we've got a couple of examples of her findings here. Yeah. Um, then uh, she worked with Robin Franklin, who was a neuroscientist at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Uh, they kind of discovered that young blood promotes the repairing of damaged spinal cords in older mice. So if you've got, I mean, that's, that's huge. Yeah. There are a lot of things that you could hopefully apply that to in humans if you can work that out in mice. The implications of that are, 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 are pretty astounding. It's the implication. It's the implication. There was another neuroscientist, Lee Rubin, uh, with whom wagers found that young blood sparks the formation of new neurons in the brain and olfactory system. Of Again. Course, associated with smell. Yeah, huge. Huge mm. if you can apply it. And then uh, with cardiologist Richard Lee at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Mass., she found that it reverses age-related thickening of the walls of the heart. Again, you've got heart, you've got brain, you've got spinal cord. Mm -hmm. Huge improvements to the, the lives of older people, uh, older mice in this case. Right. Possibly people. Now, before, before Matt and I begin to sound as if we are telethon, infomercial people shilling uh, a new cure to make your pet mouse live forever, we must go to the immediate question, which is the following. If this works in mice, if these techniques work in mice, could we rejuvenate aging humans by feeding them the blood of younger, healthy humans? We'll tell you the answer, or at least as far as modern medicine has gone, publicly after a word from our sponsor. Attention, true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like a recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As you listen to this episode and as we sit in this room and record it, research is pushing all of us in this direction, and it's threatening to collide head-on with what we understand about ethics and morality in human experimentation, something that we've been doing since humans could talk and move a scalpel around and or whatever other implement has been used in the past. Uh, We've been pushing these boundaries, and it seems like we're doing it again. One of the most immediate aspects to consider here is the power and influence of privately funded research or the very financially or socially powerful individuals who are aging and ailing and interested and interested because one thing most people seem to have in common, thanatologists find, people who study death find, is that no one wants to die. Nope. It's, you know, people do at times, unfortunately, and tragically take their own lives. But by and large, humans are hardwired to want to live Mm -hmm. for as long as possible, even in the worst of circumstances. That's why there are so many of us here today. For example, when a private firm based in Hong Kong learned of this research, they moved immediately to get in the game. It turns out. They made this move because the family who owned this corporate dynasty had a prevalent history of Alzheimer's Mm. and other private entities are attempting to get in the game. Uh, There's one you may have read about a few years back. Jesse Kermazin wants – he wants to bring this idea, this this young blood 
to the old transfusion treatment to the public with the creation of a company called Ambrosia. Ambrosia purports to rejuvenate the aging and well-to-do with injections of younger plasma. Plasma is the essentially the liquid component of blood. And the it looks pl- kind of yellow. Right. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and, the, and plasma is what's stored at blood banks. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's the stuff that has all of the antibodies and all the really important stuff. All the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> all the all the uh all the important stuff. Uh plasma in this case is going to come from people aged 16 to 25. Currently, Ambrosia has two locations. Both of which I, I I'm reading tea leaves about, but I mm-hmm. I'm making so many assumptions about this. So one location is in San Francisco. Yeah. And one's in Tampa. Tampa. So here's what I'm wondering. And and Matt, I bet you're wondering the same yeah. thing. And we, we want to know your opinion, folks. San Francisco kind of makes sense to me. Home of like water bars and – Oxygen bars and all there that There we stuff. go. Yeah. So maybe there's a uh, – maybe there's a tech guru aspect to this. Right. Got to get that edge, however. Mm-hmm. And then in Tampa, there's a uh, – what's the most polite way to say this? There's a ton of old people. <laughs> yeah, right on. Exactly. A significant percentage of the population is retired. That's what I said. <laughs> right. I think you I think you said it in a, in a uh, bit more evocative and, dare I say, accurate way than I did. It was concise. It was concise. It's important to note here in the case of Ambrosia that younger does not mean infants. We said they're 16 to 25. Don't worry. No one is tossing toddlers into a juicer as far as we know. Oh. Bad image but necessary. Understood. It's necessary for us to say that. Mm-hmm. Nor is this company at this point sewing people together or <laughs> – you know, practicing parabiosis on humans. Yeah. Instead, they're offering, as Matt said, straight up transfusions. Yeah. And um, if you want to get this done, mm-hmm. you can. Um, potentially. I can't. I don't think in this lifetime. Maybe I'll have to check with my accountant. Oh, wait, I don't have an accountant. All right. Well, no, I can't do this. Um, <laughs> the pricing plans uh, will enroll almost anybody over 35 years of age. The fees, though, are totaling up to $8,000 per person per – I don't know what you'd call it. Pop? Yeah, per transfusion, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, and they they say that is covering the expense of the research, covering the raw cost of retrieving, maintaining, mm-hmm. transporting the plasma. And it makes you wonder – uh, what happens to people in those 10 years between 25 and 35? You're too young – to receive the treatment, quote unquote treatment, yeah. you're too old to donate. So you just mm. got to make it through that decade long wilderness. Yeah, your blood is just in stasis too, I guess, according to the research. It's not really getting better. It's not getting worse. It's just kind of hanging. And Ambrosia currently has, it's had a lot of press and it obviously has a lot of people who believe in it enough to at least give it a try, but it has quite a few critics. Critics are arguing that the parobiosis experiments conducted on mice don't offer very much insight into how a one-time transfusion could affect a human. So wagers from earlier said that in 
our studies, circulation between a young mouse and an old mouse was maintained through this parabiosis for nearly four weeks, almost a month. Yeah. And you're doing this for an hour or so, a couple hours maybe? Right. I don't know. Eight grand a pop. Additionally, ethicists are concerned that ambrosia is – that because ambrosia is being financed by the participants, by the people who will receive these Mm. transfusions, I I keep – I want to do like an arch sinister voice every time I say young blood. Yeah. It's just such a sinister – Gary Oldman is Dracula phrase, you know? You just have to do like a licking of your lips sound after you say it. That's all. The children of the night. Yeah. Uh, but there, the ethical problem with this, or one of the ethical problems, is that there are not straight up investors. So if we're talking about people who are desperate to mitigate the deleterious effects of aging, then they're going to have a, a very difficult time being objective mm-hmm. about the results, uh, especially when we factor in the idea that the placebo effect does have measurable and significant physiological impacts upon a human body, right? Yep. Man. Well, so let's let's see uh, where we are, at least as of uh, – December 2016. According to Ambrosia, they've infused 25 people with young blood. So up until December 2016, it is now uh, into 2018. So who knows? Maybe that number has doubled. Well, we don't have notes from Ambrosia, but I'm sure we will get them soon. Um, so uh, Carmazine claims that his participants are seeing miraculous results, um, which is something you have to do when you have a company that does something like this. Uh, a patient with chronic fatigue syndrome, for example, quote, feels healthy for the first time and looks younger, which is nice. And, you know, these kind of antidotes will help, you know, market the study at least and get more people involved so we get more data. That that's, can't be a bad thing. But, you know, it's not proof that the plasma infusions actually work and that would-be would patients, you know, should believe these at all. At least go into it thinking maybe this will work. Right. Yeah. One of the reasons that drug approval moves so slowly is that there, well, aside from the endemic corruption in the pharmaceutical industry and the medical treat, med tech industry, um, typically on paper, the reason why these things move so slowly is because they're very important. They're yeah. literally putting people's lives in danger potentially. So there are a lot of hoops to jump through and there should be quite yeah. a few hoops to jump through. According to Jonathan Kimmelman, who is a bioethicist at McGill University, there are a lot of patient funded trials run by companies that use the trials as a way to sell products that would not be marketable because they'd have to be regulated by the FDA. Yes. And speaking of uh, a recent study concluded in November of 2017, uh, it was done at the Stanford University School of Medicine. It was a clinical trial looking at the safety, tolerability, and feasibility of administering infusions, just what we've been talking about with ambrosia, of blood plasma from young donors to participants with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. Again, very similar uh, thing that we're trying to treat here with young blood, different study, uh, which is a good thing because now you've got with multiple studies, if you're getting the same results, then you're getting closer to, you know, actually doing what a scientific experiment is supposed to do. Um, this trial in particular was created to test a hypothesis put forth by this person, Tony Weiss-Corey. 
he is a doctor. He's a Stanford professor of neurology, and he's also a scientist at the Veterans Affairs in Palo Alto, uh, anyway, in California. His research, um, he did research with mice as well, and again, found that factors in the blood of young mice can rejuvenate the brain tissue and improve cognitive performance in old mice. You can even see a TED Talk of him if you want to. Uh, but anyway, in this one, it's again uh, a company, a private company that has at least a hand in getting this research done and having this clinical trial put on. It's called Alkahest, and uh, it, it, quote, holds intellectual property associated with the treatment regimen for this particular trial. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, uh, the Tony Weiss-Curre gentleman, who was not a part of this experiment, at least according to Stanford, he is the co-founder of this company and also the chair of its scientific advisory board. Mm. So again, you've got um, private private interest to carry out these kinds of trials to see if there's anything to this young blood transfusion stuff. Right. And we're also seeing uh, that a lot of these studies or trials conducted have relatively small sample sizes. Yeah. And in this one, there were only 18 human beings that were, you know, transfused. Mm -hmm. And this, this is the public state of affairs at the present. However, There are clear and present dangers with this sort of experimentation that go far above and way beyond something like investor ethics and, uh, you know, bureaucratic concerns. Mm -hmm. As we said, a transfusion is not parabiosis. So at this point, there's not a solid load of widely accepted evidence that indicates any major health benefits. And that leads critics of places like Ambrosia to claim they are only preying on the desperate. So far, we do not know if anyone is practicing human parabiosis. In the past, there were certain grisly experiments uh, that you can hear about in a little more depth in our human experimentation series. In the past, there were experiments that approached some stuff like this. But Perhaps the most concise way to describe those experiments is to say that the people conducting the experiments were in no way concerned about the benefits or even the survival rate, uh, the benefits to or the survival rate of their patients. And a better Mm -hmm. word for their patients would have been victims because we were talking about wartime experiments by people who were absolute lunatics. Were there someone or some organization currently experimenting with human parabiosis, at this point, it would almost certainly be secret. It would be classified because it would be seven shades of illegal to do so. If it's going on currently, we would not know the age of the participants either, which is another scary thing. If it was done legally, though, they would have to be over 18 unless they had – I guess, permission from their uh, parents. I don't know if parents could sign up for that. But yeah, legally, they would all have to be over 18 for for some kind of consent to – to for informed consent mm-hmm. to occur. Within the US at least. Yeah, legally. Legally. Again, legally for that to happen. If someone is experimenting with human parabiosis, they're also running the risk of parabiosis disease, which we mentioned earlier from those experiments in the 1950s. And the chances – here's 
where we get uh, we go on some um, disturbing breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, if we're experimenting, if our species is experimenting with human parabiosis currently, then there's that risk. Was it eleven of the sixty-nine rat pairs? Right, experienced parabiosis disease. They just died after a little while. Fatal rejection. The chances of this disease occurring are greatly reduced when the participants are increasingly similar. For our purposes, when the participants are increasingly related. So, next breadcrumb, what would your closest relationship be for this experiment? What other individual would create the highest chance of success in a experiment with parabiosis? Well, one question, one might say a child, taking your own child. Uh, one might say a sibling. But we have another, uh, we have another field of technology that is moving at a rapid pace now. What's closer than a sibling, closer than a child, even closer than a fraternal twin? A clone? Spot on, Matt. A clone. So what? So imagine we've talked about this before with the possibility of growing organs, right? Mm -hmm. Or growing growing clones for spare organs. Would it be? Is there a possible future where there would be a clone grown uh, to act as a filter for your blood that's younger than you that is just kept somewhere and you just plug up to it? Maybe when you hit a certain age, you have a bunch of your genetic material put away in a vault somewhere, and then that's used to begin creating clones of you at another certain age, or maybe once you hit that age, mm. like let's say 18 or so, uh, then you just continuously throughout the rest of your life, once you hit 35, use these clones to be attached to you for a little while. And there's so little published science on this. There are absolutely no long-term studies, no longitudinal studies of the nature of of this effect. Yeah. Like what if what if someone begins engaging in some sort of thing like this? Let's say for the sake of argument, actual parabiosis, right? Mm-hmm. And let's say for a month every year or every yeah, for a month every year or something they're they're stitched next to some source of young blood and what happens to them what is what does their body look like physiologically when they are 65 when they are 75 you know how long does this go no one knows no one knows because it it's unless you're very careful it's evil to do that kind of experimentation additionally this is even weirder this is not as scary but it is weird Evidence indicates that injecting human blood plasma into the bodies of elderly mice might have beneficial effects on the mice. Hold on. Putting human plasma into a mouse helps the mouse? That's what it seems to say. There's an there's a article about this in Nature magazine. We have a quote here. Oh, yes. They, they say, infusing this human plasma into the veins of elderly mice, they found improved the animal's ability to navigate mazes and to learn to avoid areas of their cages that deliver painful electrical shocks. 
When the researchers dissected the animal's brains, they found that the cells in the hippocampus, the region associated with learning and memory, expressed genes that caused neurons to form more connections in the brain. This didn't happen in mice treated with blood from older human donors. So only the young blood helped. Right. So plasma from older humans did not have much of an effect. Plasma from younger sources, uh, umbilical cords specifically, by the way, turns out to be top notch. What could go wrong? What could go wrong with this knowledge? Mm. <laughs> right. Oh, gosh. Well, for now... It appears that any claims that young blood or plasma will extend human lifespan are false. The, or at least we just don't have the data. Right. We don't know. Up. The yeah. data is just not there. Yeah. Uh, an experiment to test such claims would take upwards of six years, first waiting for the mice to age, then for them to die naturally, then analyzing the data. Uh, if we had funding to do this, says Michael Conboy, I'd do it. But we don't. Still, he adds... After a moment of hesitation, I hope that someone, somewhere, is. Keep in mind he's just talking about mice. Yeah, yeah, just mice, just mice, and just in the, the nicest of way, Michael Conboy. Um, yeah, so, so currently it appears the best possible case we can hope for is the isolation of some specific proteins or other elements that are found in young blood, these special reasons that rejuvenation occurs, because this could lead to amazingly effective treatments for age-related ailments. We're talking Alzheimer's, dementia, and so on, without requiring people to bathe in the blood of virgins or, you know, uh, suck on un human umbilical cords. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, the hope would be that our species could isolate, let's say, a specific protein, and that specific protein could be... Marketed. Right. And created in some different way. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, this research is very expensive. It's very complicated. Uh, you'll hear a lot of people say that as the world or the owners of the world now seek to move away from an ownership economy to a service economy, uh, you'll hear people allege that quote unquote big pharma is not in the business of selling cures. They're in the business of selling scheduled treatments. So then the concern would be, you know, is it, it's not a cure-all that will help somebody's Alzheimer's. It's a pill that they have to pay for that they have to take once a day. Well, yeah, if you've got a private company that's based on making profit off of something and growing that company to hopefully one day sell it or make more money, you don't usually want to cure something. Right. You don't want to put yourself out of business. But then there are people on the other side who will say that uh, private industry is the – is a necessary factor for this kind of research. Absolutely. But – But still. <laughs> but still, uh, it does allow – and this is not us being alarmist. It does allow for the possibility of a world in which the rich find yet another avenue for victimizing the poor. Imagine – planet's worth of real-life Elizabeth Bathory's practicing non-consensual parabiosis. Research is still underway, and it's safe to say that we'll hear more about this in the near to mid-future, but Matt and I want to know what you think. Where, where do you land on this research, given that it can mitigate the effects of aging, but we should say not give people immortality, mm -hmm. so far as we know, is it worth pursuing, and where do you see it headed? So in my opinion, I think you're going to see more of what the uh, 
the character that's kind of modeled after Peter Thiel on, um, oh, what is that? What show? HBO show Silicon Valley. That, mm-hmm. that character that he's just got a young guy that comes around his house a couple times a week and they just do a blood transfusion. I think that's just going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. That's like, uh, how the way Uber drivers have, uh, there are so many Uber drivers in the world and it's just proliferated. Mm-hmm. I think there will just be that, the transfusion person. A new aspect of the gig economy. Mm-hmm. I really think so. And it's just something you do on Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, over at, uh, you know, Bill's house or whatever that guy is that lives in the mansion on the, the hill. I have no doubt that someone will go off the reservation and try this on their own, especially if they can afford a relatively unethical doctor to just participate in this kind of experimentation. But, uh, well, and the doctor could be ethical. It depends really on how much they want to pay the the group, how much work they want to put into it. But, um, I'm, I, I think it really depends on what data bears out here. If, if there is, it turns out, real tangible results and evidence, then it's Katie bar the door. You know, yeah. we don't know where it stops. But if it is a way to bilk the frightened and the aging out of money in an attempt to, uh, I guess, pay the ferryman a couple of extra coins to stay on mm. his side of the river sticks for a while, nice. then people will throw money at it, of course. But here's the question that bugs me the most, Matt. How much are the donors of Ambrosia getting paid? That's what bothers me the most. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, that's a good question. Because, I, I mean, know. I'm in. <laughs> You're in. Oh, no, I'm 30, 34. Never mind. Uh, sorry, man. Um, the uh, Another question that bugs me is what happened to parabiosis research mm. when it dropped out, when it fell out of favor? Why did it disappear from the mainstream radar for decades? Was it animal rights? Was it something else? We'd love to hear your opinion. That concludes our episode for today, but never fear. Matt, Noel, Paul, and I will be back very soon. In the meantime, you can- And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is one eight three three S T D W Y T K. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff they don't want you to know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Attention, true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 